0: And welcome back to another episode of On Coaching with Magnus and Marcus. I'm Steve Magnus, the cross-country coach at the University of Houston, author of the new book, The Passion Paradox, joined by my good friend, colleague, John Marcus, the director of High Performance West. John, how are
1: you? Oh, you know me. I'm doing incredible. I'm here to give people what they want, and what they want and what they need is that book, the passion paradox if you haven't read it why it's so good
0: that is right john was actually one of our first readers to make sure that the book didn't suck and to uh to uh guide us in the right direction so
1: yes but, and all the parts that suck they cut so it's great <laughs> <laughs> so they listen good job that and
0: you know, I, one of these episodes will have to do a behind-the-scenes episode on writing a book because, like, that is what it is, right? It's, uh, it's a process of cutting, right? You put all this information yes. out there, and then you, you hopefully uh, yourself and then have good friends and discerning readers who, you know, get, get rid of the stuff that uh, doesn't, doesn't work. And by the end, hopefully yeah, you're left was... with the, the good stuff.
1: Right, and this is why The Passion Paradox is a great book, because it's crisp, it's short. Every page is new, useful information. There are a lot of books out there. You know, Take it from the guy who's read 55 books since the start of 2019. That These books can really just be blog posts or an article or an essay. And Steve does a good job, and so does Brad, his co-author of putting articles and essays out there that should be articles and essays, but then creating a cohesive, practical, useful Narrative to be able that's worth being a book, and this book is worth being a book. So I just don't support it because my name's in the back of the book. You know I support it because it actually there's a lot of good stuff, and I've had several coaches I recommend reading it. Um, you know who have completed it and said, "Wow, game changer." So get, pick it up, get dive into it. It's worth it, even if you mm-hmm. listen to this podcast two, three years from 2019. And you haven't read it, do it now because it's one of those books you're going to read and be like, why didn't I read this sooner?
0: Yes, exactly. And also supporting stuff that both John and I put out helps uh, keep this free podcast going, um, which is always a cool thing, and we want to keep, keep doing this. So anyway, so what we're going to talk about this week is a continuation of our last uh, podcast, which if you haven't listened to it, what are you doing? Go back, listen to that. But you can let you can listen to this one as well, even if you didn't listen to the last one. Um, but what we're going to talk about is how to crawl out of the burnout hole. So last,
1: oh, that's a deep hole. <laughs> it is. Oh, yeah.
0: It is. Especially if, <laughs> if you're a pusher, like most of our listeners wow. are, like most of runners are. Um, we're very good at getting into the burnout hole. Um, and very good at ignoring ourselves digging that hole. Um, but the, the hard part comes when we get to the bottom of that hole and look up and are like, how in the world do we get out of this?
1: Yes. Yes, it is. Having been there, it is, it is a tough elephant to eat, you know. And the cliches, you know, are around because they're true, right? And it's like like anything else, you just have to one chunk at a time figure out, systematically at least this is my process when i got in the burnout hole was to say how did i get here and just do a, a very deep you know reflection and then have like a long cathartic process of being like okay i got here how did i get here because i didn't want to get here that wasn't the destination that wasn't the goal and i don't like being here because it sucks on a lot of different levels and what's one thing i can start doing right now today taking action that?" can help me crawl out of this get out of this get some forward momentum back to health and sustainability and i think that's where you have to do uh you know personal inventory and say what's the smallest possible action you take right now to get out of the hole
0: yeah there's a lot to unpack there um because a lot of times when you're in the the burnout kind of hole um that that small action is really difficult to do <laughs> right yeah when you're completely shot and fried like even easy stuff becomes difficult to do
1: yeah i mean the total apathy and like you it's it's crushing like i mean i didn't want to go out of bed or you know all i was doing was eating junk food and watching movies and like i mean steve would be like hey can you do this like yeah i'll get to it no not happening today And it's not because of a lack of industry. It's just a lack of like, you know, the the chemicals are off in a lot of reasons, a lot of ways. And you just, you don't, you physically don't have the mojo to do it.
0: Yeah, yeah, you know, and this is one of the places where I think societal uh, norms have kind of held us back because we have this idea or concept that um, if we feel apathetic, if we're not motivated, then it's our fault for not being like tough enough or not having enough, um, uh, you know, drive or um, right. willpower to do it, but in a lot of cases, like that's not that's not the case at all. Like I may I think it's similar to if you're in the marathon and you bonk, and you might have all the you might have all the reason, will, drive to make it to the end of the race, but there's nothing your body can do. Um I think sometimes we we separate this like physical and psychological to too high of a degree and that they're very similar things I mean if you look at all from overtraining to burnout to depression like no they're not all the same but they have similar underlying chemical um, imbalances and reasons um, chemical sharing that occur so it's it's very similar, and I think that's where we do a disservice in saying, "Oh, like you just feel apathetic or you don't feel motivated." Like, why aren't you? Uh, why aren't you? Uh, you know, willing your way out of this?
1: Yeah, it's weird. We blame the agent, right? We blame the person who's not being industrious and not taking action, as if they are now like an invalid. And I think that's. Uh, it's interesting because I had a lot of people around me. Who are well intended take that posture of like oh kind of white glove treatment uh i don't know how to interact with you hey just go get help just go see someone like very well intended advice but it's like it's not just like oh yeah let me go i'm hungry and it's lunchtime and i need to go eat something i go to subway and get a sandwich it's, it's not that easy of a transaction by any means because what it requires is it's kind of like anything where it's a transformable um pivot or a transformable rebound. Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, I mean, they have a support group, they have steps, they have a whole infrastructure set in place to graduate people through this process. And so this is not just a simple, you know, one time transaction, take the, ma- take the blue pill and you're fine. You got in the hole through a series of uh, cascading and snowballing actions that led you down into it. And vice versa, the only way to get out is through another series of virtuous, right, instead of vicious cascading actions and sequence of actions that get you out of it.
0: Yeah, you know, it, the other thing that you mentioned at the very get-go here is this almost like post-mortem, how did I get here? In um, a lot of ways, I think we have to treat this burnout phenomenon similar to how we would treat um, an injury, Right or um, even overtraining in, in running. Mm-hmm. Like, we have to sit back and say, okay, like, obviously, somewhere along this line, we, like, we went off the tracks, right? There was some, there's always some sort of cause to to why your body broke down, just as the way, you know, maybe your body and mind and psychology and all that way broke down with this, this burnout phenomenon. So... It's mm-hmm. like doing, at some point, you have to do the due diligence of, of figuring out, okay, why did I go off the track? And then, like, how do I make that better for next time um, so that, like, I don't fall back in this hole? Because a lot of times what happens is people feel burnout. They say, oh, gosh, this is horrible. I'm going to get out of this. They get out of it, right? They will. It, they, yeah. they figure out how to climb out of the hole. And then like they walk five feet to the right and then start digging a new hole. And, and, yes. and then a year or two later, like they find themselves in the same spot, maybe even a, an entirely different area, right? I've had friends who have been like, oh, this this job is killing me. I'm going to do something else. Like they go to another job and they, they treat, they take the same tactics and everything towards it. And then, you know, they realize eventually, like it's not the job. It's how I was like approaching it
1: no it's you it totally is a hundred percent you because i don't very few people are like well i have this job i don't like I gonna go take a shittier job that i like less and then i'm gonna get burned out again most people when they take a job it's a it's a moment of possibility and excitement and enthusiasm right so you were excited to take this job in the first place what happened in six months or a year that now made this job this ogre that has caused you to have burnout it's nothing with the position the role the demands on it it's all hundred percent you. And to me, I think it's that fundamental, uh, you know, full ownership that you are the primary agent in your life and you need to know thyself, right? And know you. And we typically as humans are creatures of patterns and cycles. And so if you're having a sequence of patterns where it's like, you know, ups and downs, peaks and valleys, that's not bipolar necessarily. What it is, is like, Realizing you just didn't figure out the correct triggers to stay away from. You know the diet fails in the grocery store when you buy the Oreos. The you know um, sobriety fails when you step a foot into the bar. There's nothing else to do in the bar but drink. So it's easy. Don't it's it's this environmental um, setup that matters the most. And your environment, our environment shapes us. It's it's amazing the empowering impact of even your home environment your car environment, the little micro environments that you subject yourself to every day, that shapes us. And for me, it was a understanding of the action I started to take was uh, moving more towards minimalism or tidying up, getting rid of all clutter, like really just making a break with a lot of stuff. And like, I counted up, I have over a thousand books in my house, a thousand, like physical paper books, and there are 250 on the Kindle, Right. So that's a lot of space and then i also have all these clothes from all these you know places i have worked you know because when you are a coach you get a lot of clothes <laughs> because <laughs> that's you don't get money but you get lots of clothes right because you get a sponsorship or whatever or you're you know uh from the university if you're in that setting or you get free product blah 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 and it's awesome at the time but eventually it takes up space and what we know about minimalism and one of the um, books that I read that was really helpful and really simple, really straightforward and just kind of catalyzed me was Goodbye, Come the Things by a Japanese guy. And they're like extreme minimalist the list, like get rid of everything but like 10 objects type guys. But taking those principles, it was like, get rid of the stuff that's weighing you down. Get rid of the stuff that you haven't used in a long time. And we have this kind of hangover from the Great Depression, golden era generation where well, I might use it maybe sometime in the future, so I better hang on to it. That's BS now. Like we live in the world of abundance. You know, we don't need to hoard physical photos or documents or anything anymore. Take a picture of it, scan it, keep it on Ever, you know, Evernote or, some, or your iCloud or whatever. But alleviate the clutter in your space, and that for me was very empowering. And then I started to alleviate the clutter on my body, right? And so it started with my physical environment that I was in day to day. But then it was also about the physical environment that I was in um, my body. So, you know, there's a great book that I think is brilliant. It's called Squatter Every Day. And, you know, I read it three times. Now I read, I reread it. I just said, you know what, I'm going to do that. I'm going to squat every single day. And it's just like running, right? Some days are heavy. Some days are, light some days are intervals some days are this but just front squat every single day and that to me it was one of the very first acts I did in the morning and it just set myself up with the trigger said today I'm going to take care of my body today I'm going to do right by my physicality and if I squatted there was a lot less um, possibility that I was going to you know eat processed junk food you know, have an extra beer or two you know have too many cookies or treats and that that action reoriented me about okay let's get a, let's get to a physical space where i'm respecting myself by putting the work in but and lo and behold it slimmed me up burned me up got me to a place where i could do what i want to do which is run again and just create a virtuous cycle that really catapult me out of the deep hole
0: Yeah, you know, I think the environment aspect of it is highly, highly um, underrated because there's a well-known field of psychology called ecological psychology, which essentially says that um, environment invites action, right? So Mm -hmm. if you have, you know, (laughs) the classic example I like to use, and I'm guilty of it too, is If you walk into the center of any modern house, what sits in the middle of like, what's it all centered around? And the TV, TV, right? (laughs) Like the TV, Uh, which has the couch and then chairs around it uh and stuff like that. Everything's centered at that. So your focus and attention goes there. So your most likely thing to do when you're maybe short short on willpower or come home from a long day of work is to plop down in front of it because that's what your environment is inviting you to do um it's no different than if you know if you leave your running shoes and a pair of shorts in the car um as you drive home like you're more likely to stop and like get a run in Versus get home and then like try and find your running shoes somewhere where they're hidden and all that stuff. Like ease of environment helps. And I think, well, that's such a simple thing that often it's lost. And when you're in this depths of the, this burnout Phase. Like the simpler you can make things, the uh, less decisions you have to make, the better. And, and that's why I do like that idea of minimalism that you mentioned. And not only in terms of things or stuff, but also in terms of actions and schedules and to do lists. Right? Is like simplify, simplify, simplify. Don't worry, you know. In the running context, don't worry about getting fit for and what you're going to race five months from now worry about like what you're able to do and getting out the door right now right um Mm -hmm. athletes that i've had who have gone through burnout myself and myself included like we'd go with zero schedule and be like just get out the door once you're once you're out the door like you'll figure it out and if you feel like going long go long if you feel like Going for a jog around the block or going for a walk, then do that. Like it doesn't matter, right? But if you can Mm -hmm. get that routine back, then we can worry about things. Um, But don't complicate it. Keep it simple.
1: Yeah. Quick aside on that, you know, when Daniel Herrera broke the um, Mexican national record in the mile a couple years back, three fifty six, I coached him day to day. There was it was simply it was a text message every single day. Here is what we're. How are you doing? checking in getting a daily pulse okay here's what we're doing today there was no plan grandiose plan written down like you're gonna break four you're gonna do this it was actually what i call adaptive coaching it was moment to moment what does this person need right now to be able to elevate and compete at the level that he has uh, desired to compete and i i tell people this all the time like i'm agnostic about how we get to the destination but the destination must be hyper clear It must be like we're going to this street. Uh, I mean, you'd also say, hey, take me to Steve's house in Houston. Like, I have the address. I know the streets. I go, I'm going to Steve's house in Houston. Now, how I get there, maybe there's traffic. Maybe there's a detour. Maybe there's flooding. You know, those things will happen, but you need to know where you want to end up. And I think that's also true with detailing and organizing and designing a life is like, where do you really want to end up? in 10, 20, 30 years, not specifically like, you know, as a child would say, Oh, I want to have a big house and money in the bank and all these things. Like, you know, do I want, do I want to be fit or do I want to be overweight and stressed out? do I want to have this role or do I, you know, but as a compromise of it have hypertension because I'm always stressed out in this role. Like you only get one life to live and it's not worth living the one life you have and the few breaths you have on this planet. Um, playing the like who has the better role game or who has the better salary game or who has the more prestige position game like i'm sorry at the end of the day that's gonna knock on the door and everyone's done it doesn't matter your role your salary or whatever but you are in control of you and that's what i realized is like me first and it's tough as a coach who's a giver by nature and you are there or is it even you know or a parent or anyone who's in the giving profession your competency is measured and your um, ability is directly wedded to other people's actions and achievements. So you of course want to provide as much as possible at the drop of a hat and it's well intended. But the reality is if you're not right, nothing that you do is right. The quality is compromised every single step of the way. And so that was another realization I had me first. So now I don't even look at my text messages, you know, until like 9 a.m. Like, I don't care if you're freaking out. You know what? You're a, bit, you're, you're a grown person. You can deal with it. At a certain time, I don't even, you know, look at text messages or any kind of um, correspondence, electro- electronic correspondence after a certain hour. And Eric Hines taught me that, who preceded Mike Smith at NAU. Uh, you know, he's like, at 5.30, I stopped. I stopped interacting with my cell phone because he needed to be home and be with his family, not just be the head track coach at NNU because it was bleeding him dry. And that's what I mean. People are vampires. If you let them, they will bleed you dry, not maliciously, but because you're saying, it's okay to interrupt me at any time. It's okay. I'll get back to you instantly with a text message. And I ask myself all the time, right? Is this important or is this urgent slash interesting? Important matters are matters that must be dealt with at this moment. Urgents are little freakouts or hangnails or interesting. It's like, oh, that's kind of that's cool. It, you, that stuff can all be backloaded. That stuff can all be dealt with later. But you have to be super strict, I think, or at least that's worked for me, about when you do things and when you don't do things. And it's making a daily schedule when, like, I do things here and I do things there, and that's it. Uh, that to me, like, Inspired by Winston Churchill, you know, his daily regime was amazing. And uh, I mean, it was just so clarifying. And he he got so much done because at certain um, rhythms in his day, when he knew when he was at his best, he did those actions. And so he wasn't paralyzed by thought or by fear or by procrastination. He's like, hey, I got an hour to do this. And this is why I do this. Because if I don't do it this hour, I'm not doing it because I got other stuff on the docket. And it was awesome.
0: Yeah, you know what, it makes me think to a conversation I had uh, last week with a fellow college coach, uh, Shayla Houlihan, Um, and we were talking about how we... Who's
1: a great coach, by the way. I love her so much. Shayla, if you're listening, you're awesome.
0: (laughs) There you go. Shout out to Shayla. Uh, But like, we all got into the college coaching thing at at around the same time, Um, so she's kind of our peer group. And it's been—we were talking a little bit of how our mindset has evolved and how things have shifted, and it, we got to talking about how important it is to like take time for yourself and um, try prioritize like just living um, and taking care of daily living stuff, um, especially in the sense that. If you're gone for, let's say, like, this weekend for me, for Texas Relays, for three days, you're away, then maybe Wednesday afternoon before we leave, like, I got to leave the office early, go home, do laundry, take care of myself, take care of, like, get in a run, whatever it is for me, um, because, like, I'm going to be gone all week, you know, or all weekend. And it's, like, giving yourself that permission versus sitting there thinking, like, okay, like, no, I have to, you know, be at this place at this time and do this at this time. Um, because it's really tough to do and, and coaching isn't this nine to five job. You work a lot of weekends, you give back a lot, you're up at, you know, 6 a.m. doing stuff. So you've got to make sure to almost like plan in like you time to make sure that you don't burn out and can handle that. And actually I was reading an article, I think it was a Stanford Uh, swim coach who says that you know one day a week he like his team when his team has like easy practice he leaves it up to his assistant goes off and and goes golfing and then another week or another day he tells his assistant to do the same and leave and like go do something for you and you can miss practice um, because, like, he's sending the message that, hey, like, this is really difficult work for you you athletes, but it's also really difficult work for me, and if I need to stay in this for the long game, like, I've got to do some something to, like, take down that stress, give me some sort of sense of well-being, um, and can't be the the coach that sleeps in his office, which I think is uh, a fantastic message to send.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you're sleeping in your office you're doing it wrong, you know, and I think it, it, it we prioritize that like Protestant and work ethic like 18, 20 hours, like, you know, or the Silicon Valley, like 100 hour work weeks, Wall Street, whatever. No, you're dumb. I'm sorry, period, end of story. It just, you, ha- you don't, ha- you need to hire more help. You need to, you know, create boundaries. You need to not do that. Like, because the most important resource is the human resource, the human being, the person. Like, you can't, you know, you push yourself to ad nauseum and get in the seesaw of burnout and recovery, burnout and recovery, because at a certain point, your body will say, Hey, look, I warned you a lot of times. Now I'm done. And then what? Right. And then what? And what's it for? Like to say you won some title to say some athlete that, you know, really wasn't into it. You kind of conjoled into being a champion. What about next season? What about the season after that? Right. It's finding that sustainable practice. And I think, there's a lot to be said for rituals. Uh, in the great book uh, *Creative Habit* by the dancer uh, Twyla Tharp, I think her name is. Um, you know, she talks about ritualizations, and for her, her ritual, because she's a dancer and she's in her late 60s, but she's a teacher, choreographer. She still needs to show like the moves to the dancers and the troops that she teaches. Is she gets up every morning at 5:30? She lives in New York City. She gets on her gym clothes. She goes downstairs, she hails a cab, she gets in the cab and she goes and works out um, and strengthens and keeps her body in peak physical condition for two hours every day. And she says, what the trigger, the ritual's completed, it's finished when I'm in the cab. And that's brilliant because for her, she's in the cab. No one wants to get up and work out at 5.30 every day. She's like, I have days I start this thing, I don't want to do this. You know, it's cold, I'm hungover, whatever. I I didn't have a good night's sleep. But she just goes through she's automated the ritual so there's no thought it's completely subconscious she just goes puts on the clothes and gets in. once she gets in the cab it's like her little reward you did a good thing because most times when you go to the gym you're happy you went to the gym and you're happy that you've been to going to the gym for years and years and years and years and i think there's a lot to be said with that ritual like for me it was developing and sustaining the ritual of you know reading and coffee from 5 a.m to 7 a.m and no interruptions nothing you know and that just that is for me helps put me off on the right foot and then after that i go and work out you know where it's squatting going to the gym or going for a run or squatting going for a run whatever it is you know so i have three hours in the morning before i even start my day you know 5 a.m to 8 30 where it's all about me and you might not say oh i can't live that life that's fine find the restorative time that you need in a day or in a week or in like maybe by in two weeks and then get the get the reps in get the time in and if you need two hours a day to feel like man, i'm, I'm taking care of me i'm on point or you need 10 hours in a week schedule that restorative time in and keep it sacred keep it super sacred and you might not be able to do it every single day at the same time but schedule it say oh hey i can't meet with you now because I got I got an appointment at two and they're like, what's the appointment? Oh, it's an important appointment. Can't break it. If it's you going out for a walk or a run or reading, don't break that appointment with yourself. Because if you do, what you're saying, the signal is you actually lack integrity. If you told yourself you were going to do something for you and then you break it, how can anyone else trust you in the long run to follow up on something? And I think, you know, we have to be disciplined with those habits. Otherwise we we backslide into just the you know um, spinning aspiring out of control and I, i've learned this and that because i've i've seesawed a little bit too and it finally just came to a head and i said like, no never again because when you go down that deep dark hole and you've been there it is an inflection point you know andrew Eden calls it rock bottom and you know he's hit rock bottom and you know he moved to portland and i helped nurse him out of the rock bottom and was just there after he retired and you know he's really beat up because he lost like most athletes do. I mean, he's a two-time Olympian. I mean, he lost his sense of identity. He's like, I've been this amazing, you know, fast, ex- expected to be runner guy, the 1500 meter guy for America for however long and now I have to figure out how to reinvent myself and that's a heavy burden and, you know, he, he spiraled down. You know, he, he's bounced back and it's been awesome to see. He's reinventing himself and it's great but don't minimize the importance of the ritual and the importance of the time for you. If you're a giver, everyone around you is taking because you're in that giver role but you need to give to yourself and that means you need to take a little time for yourself too
0: yeah you know and i think that like it's it's this tough juxtaposition right where if you're a giver you almost gain energy from like getting giving and providing to others um, but that yeah. at the same time, if it goes overboard, it's like anything like it's too much. It starts taking it away. And I think that's where it's really, really important on on, uh, you know, having that hard conversation with yourself and figuring out where that is. You know, um, early on in my coaching, uh, I was like, oh, I'll, I'll coach whoever, like I'll help whoever, like, <laughs> you know. Yes. And and uh-huh. like the sentiment is great. And like I really enjoy that in theory, but over time you have to realize, well, there's only so much uh, space and time that I have that this is gonna take away from people um, if I keep doing this freely. So it's really coming to the point where you say, okay, like how many, if my goal is to help people, like how many can I actually help? Right, and what what does that bandwidth look like? How much bandwidth do I have? I mean, I have to ask this question all the time because I juggle a million different things. Like John does, is you know, if I want to write, which I do, like where do I give that like importance? How much time do I commit to that? Where does it fall into play? Um, You know, does it? Can you talk
1: about real quick, real quick, tangent on your writing, Steve, with the stopwatch? Talk about that that discipline of your stopwatch and writing.
0: Yeah. So um, that's something, again, I'm always looking at different ways to kind of keep me on track and pay and give me, it's more than like keeping me on track. It's giving awareness to what I'm doing, right? Because I've really been trying to focus on being uh, intentful on the practices that I'm doing. So what I do is when I sit down to write, I treat it just like I do I would a workout right because that's something very similar to me. So I'll start my watch right when I sit down to write, mm-hmm. start my watch, take my split. And then if I, if I start, you know, maybe someone calls like I stop, I split my watch. So that time doesn't count. Like that's my recovery interval. Essentially. If I splat- yeah. find myself like, you know, most of the time I write with my internet off, but if I have it on and I start going through emails, like split my watch, stop. And, Like that just brings it home to where I'm treating it like, okay, it's all right if I have some of these rest periods every once in a while, but it's, it's just like a workout. Like when I'm in the workout, like I'm trying to get in the good hard work. Like that's, that's the point. So like, you know, a rest period to get up and, you know, walk around the room or like go grab some coffee or a drink or whatever, like that's fine. But like, then I got to get back to doing the workout and you know what i've i i did this for a while is like i'll try and like track my intentional time um spent on writing to see how much quality i'm getting in um and it just it just kind of keeps me accountable as well but the most most important thing is like it it puts intent and you know as you know john like i like to do most of my writing at coffee shops, or I have a little, mm-hmm. a, a little small room in my house, um, which I can just close the door, and it's super small, and it's just me in there. Um, which I—that's I a
1: great room, by the way. I love it. I've worked in that room. Yeah, a great room.
0: So, like, but that's but <laughs> I'm intentional on it. Like, I don't, I yeah. don't do very good. I like if I try, I can't write on my couch or sitting at my kitchen table. It doesn't work very well. So it's being a little ritualistic, and and in terms yes. of balancing it with my coaching too, is I'm very intentional on carving out time when I know that okay, like during, uh, for instance, um, you know we have one one morning a week where we're on our own, right, to give the kids a break mm-hmm. from waking up and. It's always an easy run, so generally those mornings I'm like, okay, I don't have practice, so I'm gonna get up and I'm gonna go to the coffee shop for three hours, and this is gonna be my running time, and then I'll go into, you know, work and start, you know, handling the the stuff and coaching that I don't like the paperwork, but um, it's like being intentional on setting aside that time of of when I'm supposed to be doing things.
1: What is like? since when you started that practice now like what transformations or how have you how has it changed you
0: yeah i well i think the timing and in, in general has made me more focused on what i'm doing like i'm i'm getting more quality out of it so what i've noticed just as a basic you know trend in my own writing history is when i was younger like i could sit sit down and just crank something out for hours upon hours upon hours no different than i could in running um But over time, like, you know, maybe it's being immersed in the modern Internet social media age and or maybe it's just growing older. Like my mind drifts, my work uh, ethic, I guess, uh, efforts drift a little bit more. So I have to have these like reminders to stay engaged. No different than now if I go out for If I was to go out for a workout, like it's a heck of a lot easier for me to say, okay, I'm going to do eight quarters and then now get to four and be like, "Uh, this kind of sucks. I'm going to step away. Um, Yeah. (laughs) So it's like that same thing happens in in any um, avenue you pursue, any activity you do. So it's really about setting up my environment to make sure that, hey, if I'm going to try and get, get the most out of what I'm doing, that I'm like being intent on doing it.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, it, that's one of those things When Steve told me about. It. I was like, man, he is smarter than I am. Gosh, that's so good. Because quantifying, you know, your work, because you, we can fool ourselves. Like, oh, yeah, I got a lot done today. Well, if you just answered, like, foreign emails, but you didn't make any, you know, appreciable gains on the big project that has this deadline looming, like Steve has with articles he might publish or books he has to write, right? Well, you didn't really do anything. You know, you fooled yourself. And that easy simple quantifiable how much time did i really spend doing the craft that matters it's, it's kind of why i don't care about mileage right it's not that you know mileage like just racking up as many miles doesn't say anything but how many hours have you spent writing this week it it, it kind of to me it, it encapsulates a little bit more crisply how much time you're really spending doing the art or doing the work or doing the practice right versus saying well, I got 70 miles in. Well, what does that really mean? It's kind of an abstract number. But if you only have so many hours in a day or a week and you, you devoted two of those hours every day, you know, whether in one session or two sessions or three sessions or whatever to running or bettering your and preparing your physical competitive physique, okay, and then we can say, hey, that was a good chunk of your you know, life your week, this week you've decided to um, fork over to getting better. And we can actually say that's good. And now we don't need to just grow it just to grow it. We can't say, oh, well, last week you ran 14 hours. This week you need to run 16 hours or else, because we can get caught up in the wrong measures. And I feel like mileage sometimes is a wrong measure. Running 100 mile weeks just to run 100 mile weeks doesn't accomplish anything. You know, it's it, we're not competing against who can run the most miles in a week. We're competing against who can get to the finish line fastest. And who's to say you, that's a prerequisite is 100 miles a week? It's not. It's pretty arbitrary. But if you can say with confidence that, hey, you know, I've done my craft um, with consistency for three months and done about 15 hours a week of my craft for three months, oh, wow. You're going to be pretty good. (laughs) I don't care who you are. I don't care what craft you have, you know? But it's just getting a better measure, I think, too. But that, you're spot on, Steve, man, that environment design. That is a game changer. And it takes a lot of upfront work to design your environment. But once you've designed it, man, it's it's just, it's, it's habitual. It, it's just a simple, I'm here and only here do I do this. You know, another thing for me was just clearing my desk. That was a big thing. I read, uh, um, you know, I read a lot about creatives like advertisers or, uh, you know, um, just artists, different creator, creatives that are not, athletic minded people and um one of the books by a, a, a famous ad man who actually met the, the madman series i guess there's a tv series called madman that's based off of him but i guess it's he's like it's not me at all uh his big thing is my desk at the end of the day is spotless that's that's i leave it spotless and i come to a spotless desk and as he's creating and designing and papers and things yeah they can get messy but at the end of the day the last thing he does is keep a absolutely clean desk and you know what i used to be very messy with my desk lots of papers lots of things in process as i said or like projects in process and now it's like no more i mean it was a great uh, inspiration and it's worked really well because now you have this clean desk and it's this virgin canvas every day and you're like what am i going to put on it and what am i going to do what am I going to spend and i can focus on this so if i read a book i'm focusing on the book if i'm doing something with the computer, like writing training for athletes or reflecting on my thoughts. It's just that it's just the journal a reflection journal. It's just the computer right training. That's it. And so what it does is it allows us to uh, amplify what we're good at. And, you know, men more than women are good at just focusing on one path because we're more linear thinkers. Women tend to be more lateral thinkers. Like my wife amazes me all the time. She can keep like seven, um, conflicting thoughts in her head concurrently and she's like why can't you and I go dude I'm just a male like and that's the reality is you have to also know how you're hardwired. and some people this might not work but it's worked brilliantly for me and it's been very very helpful and part of the reason why I've been able to read you know 50 plus books in less than 3 months I mean I tell people like I'm not special I'm actually a very slow reader but I just streamlined the design of my environment and I have certain periods of the day, the two hours in the morning once I wake up, and the two hours right before I go to bed that I read. Four hours a day, every single day, you know, however many weeks. Do the math, that creates a lot of time to read.
0: Yeah, you know, I, th- I think part of it is that when... We grow up as athletes, our structure is taken care of. Well, uh, let me, yes. you know, <laughs> and I think to a to large degree, like the general population is like non athletes are like that too, but even more so as yeah. an athlete, you know, is, uh, you know, when I was in high school, like it was a no, there were no questions. Like I, I didn't have to think of my structure because I knew all right, Steve, like high school, I can walk, th- you know, decades later, like I can walk you through it, you know, right now because it's like, okay, I'm going to get up. My alarm's going to go off. Like I'm going to get my running stuff on. I'm going to pack my bag. I'm going to go straight to school. I'm going to go run, you know, my senior six miles, uh, six to seven miles around school, shower, go to class, right? And then you're in class until the afternoon and it's, it's practice in the afternoon. Then I'm going to come home. I'm going to be dead. I'm gonna eat some dinner, do my homework, go to bed by ten o'clock. <laughs> you know? Yeah. There there yeah. was there's just like this inbuilt structure where if I didn't if I didn't set a time where I was gonna run or when I was gonna do homework, like it wasn't gonna get done. So like it was in there. Um and even even, you know, you get a little more flexibility in college, but it's just, it's very similar because it's like I have practice at these times, I have to get runs in at these times, I have to show up to class at these times, uh, for the most part, and, and like you know this is what it's going to be, so there's that structure and I think sometimes when we get into um you know adulthood where we have more choices is that structure kind of goes away if we don't have that typical maybe nine to five job. Even if we have that nine to five job, no one tells you what to do during that nine to five job. Like you don't have separate classes every hour that you have to shift to. You just have nine to five to get things done. So, It's like that. That structure goes away, and I think sometimes that it leaves us on this like paradox of choice, where too many choices leave us where we don't get anything done. And I've definitely had had those days where I didn't have structure, or I didn't have something where I was like, "All right, I'm gonna work on this." Where I would, you know, sit there and two hours go by, and I'm like, "Wow, I tweeted." and posted <laughs> this and that's yeah. that that's it and it's not because i didn't want to get things it's just because like i didn't have the environmental structure around me now as we're sitting here talking Uh, Like, it might seem like we're being, like, um, you know, very strict on this. But John can tell you, like, my house is not very organized. There's papers all all over the place. But (laughs) there are certain periods of time where, again, where I know I'm working on this. Or certain days, like, Sunday is my schedule writing day. Like, I write schedules, training schedules on Sunday. Yep. It's, yep. it's my religious experience. Um, <laughs> yeah,
1: it really is. It's, 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 been, it's awesome to watch him at a coffee shop just crank it out training for like three hours. He's like at mass.
0: Exactly. But like there, <laughs> yeah. that, that's the great example of this is going to get done at this time. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of thrown off if I, I don't have my Sunday. So, um, yeah. yeah. so like that's it. Like it's, it's find your thing right find yeah. what works for you well um you might need a super clean desk or you might need to be intentional on, on when you're sitting down to doing things and keeping track of things or you might need to just set aside time to where i'm going to focus on this and the reason we're talking about this in this burnout section is because it, it burnout isn't just too much work right it's not no no it's definitely not <laughs> no it's it's not like oh i work too much that that's like saying you know, oh, um, you got injured because you ran too much. Well, maybe, yeah. but but there's yeah. there's <laughs> a lot more details to that that you know that picture than than I just ran too much, right? It's all these uh, all these different loads and biomechanics and all that stuff. And the same comes mm-hmm. with burnout. And I think that's where you know why we're talking about so much on this is. When you 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 dug yourself out of that hole and you're figuring out okay how do I set my life up so that I don't do this? It's it's okay. There needs to be some intentional action on this. And then the other component, before I ramble off on the deep end on here, is that it, it's also satisfying your basic needs, right? Um, right. Which you know one of those needs is like this community and belonging piece, and. I think when you're burnt, when a lot of people, when they enter this burnout and they maybe rearrange part of their life and say, I'm going to work less, what they don't consider is this community aspect that, again, we took for granted in athletics, um, especially in high school and college, where I think one of the reasons why it's harder to burn out in those spaces is because, like, it's not just you're going on a run. In most cases, it's I'm going to shoot the shit for an hour with my best friends, you know? Oh yeah, and oh yeah, and that part, that community piece, like helps almost um, buffer you from this burnout. And as we reach adulthood, I think we need to spend more time figuring out how do we keep that um, ingrained and involved.
1: Well, it's having virtuous anchors throughout your day, and so some are relational anchors, some are um, self enhancement anchors, some are duty anchors, and so it's a series of different anchors, right? And that's what I've learned. And I'll credit um, the, the Rock, Dwayne Johnson, to um, give me the language of anchors. Because his anchor is where no matter what, what his ritual is every day, he, and he can travel the globe, he can travel halfway around the world. You know, when he gets off a plane or when he first wakes up in the morning, whichever one happens, his thing is he goes, hits a couple shots of espresso, hits the weights. That's his anchor. And he goes, I need that anchor to let me go out and be in the world and we and that's what the structure gives you as an anchor right so you have the relational anchor in high school if you're an athlete of practices also associated with a peer group that you're really aligned with you know working on a team sport or even in an independent sport like tennis or track on a common goal so you have that anchor built in you have these other anchors where it's like Okay, I'm going to study from these hours to these hours. Or my duty is to be a class from these hours to these hours. My duty is to be at my job from these hours. Okay, so you feel that duty industrious anchor. Good, good for you. And we esteem those things in our, you know, Western um, modern society. And then we say, okay, luckily also practice takes care of the physical wellness and being anchor. If you're not on a team, you're in a PE class maybe, or maybe you do something else like lifting in high school or, or whatever. But see, as we go out of the, the intelligent structure that is the institution of schooling in America or, in, you know, the Western concept, we start to, those anchors start to recede and they don't become mandatory. They become our responsibility to put in place. And then you start to switch and shift the anchors, right? You say, oh, now I'll go hang out with my buddies at the bar and watch the game. Or on Sunday, I go to the bars and watch football on Sundays, and those are different anchors, and those are actually vicious anchors in the long run because they satisfy a short-term need, but they hurt you in the long mm-hmm. run. I think it's having the intelligence to be able to say what are my anchors, right? And it's like for me, that's what my schedule is. It's different anchors throughout the day, and I have what I call free time or un you know unstructured time, but I. I just want to make sure I hit on the big themes and the big rocks that are important to my well-being and my relational well-being. Like, you know, from six eight six to eight every day is like my wife. I focus and I'm just with my wife. She gets off work, we do something activity together. We have dinner. I make dinner or something. But six to eight for two hours dedicated to her, and she can be tired or have a meeting or something, and you know, doesn't use it that day. But that's okay. Like she has that every work work week you know for six to eight or what i also another anchor is i try to call all my friends once every two weeks so call danny Mackey, call mike smith you know try to just call steve even though he ignores me all the time like <laughs> call brad you know his, his uh his co-author and my buddy like call mario Ferrelli, like you know these these guys are just my friends and i just want to talk to them and they're my anchors And, you know, I might only hit one or two of them because we're all busy. But I realized, like, ten minutes of talking to Mike, you know, and we rarely talk about coaching. We just talk about things. You know, it just leaves us feeling a lot better for the week ahead, you know. And I think that's the key thing is understanding the need for these structural anchors but also the multidimensional anchors. And you have to identify those. Like, And I, I put it down very crisply as, you know, my, the things that give are my well-being anchors, right? So well-being. And you can define that in multiple buckets, right? Intellectual, emotional, physical, spiritual, etc. cetera. And then you have your relational anchors. So that might be how you relate to, like, colleagues at work or if you're a coach, athletes you work with or assistant coaches or, you know, the head coach if you're an assistant or people in your athletic department or what have you. It's your friends, you know, current friends, past friends. It's your family, I mean, you know, again, it's, you know, people who are in a study group with you or in your running club, whatever, you know, and then you have, uh, your duty anchors. Like I got to show up and get this done. I have to get this done because people are counting on me to get it done. And, you know, fulfilling that for most people, it's their, their job or household chores is another thing, you know, and again, you can take that and put that in a lot of different buckets. And those are kind of the big three that I feel like if you can hit on one of those every day you know, that will help you from not being burnt out because with burnout, like Steve said, it's not about working too much. It's about not restoring enough, right? It's the principle of under-recovery, under-restoration. We can we have a high capacity work. I mean, look at people who do, you know, the Comrades Marathon. Look at the people who do, you know, the Leadville 100. People do that, but they don't do it every day. <laughs> <laughs> but they do it and they prepare for it. But afterwards, like, one of the former athletes I worked with, uh one of the athletes I worked with at Portland State, she's now like a badass ultra runner, and I'm just amazed at what Camelia can do. And I'm just like, this is insane! Like, oh, it's a short, short race. I go, what, 50k? I go, Jesus, you know? I'm just like, it's just the currency is beyond my context. But for her, it's not a big deal. Oh yeah, you know, it's whatever, whatever, whatever. She finds it very, she actually finds running 50ks very restorative, and racing that distance restorative. 100 mile races are tough. Marathons are tough. But for her, it's a restorative practice. And I think I'd be remiss if, you know, I didn't say that self-reflection and identification of what your restorative uh, anchors are. Those need to be always first, because if you're not rested and ready to go and you're telling your athletes to recover and, you know, get ready for the next workout or race, you know, you you're being a total hypocrite. But it's something we all struggle with because we are pushers you know as athletes and coaches and we're passionate and it's a paradox isn't it steve
0: (laughs) you know if you want to learn more about that then you can go off and read the book the passion paradox but in all you know in all honesty like that is that is part of the book is that um you know um, if you're a pusher, like you have this tendency to to uh, have an increased likelihood for um for burnout because like passion is like this jet fuel right and if you're a pusher, you tend to have a lot of uh, uh, passion so if like we just let that jet fuel burn then like we're headed off in whatever direction without actually knowing where we're going or where we're going to end up. So it's really important that you take the time to step back and be like okay, wh- where am I directing this fuel that I have and when am when am I spending this fuel, right? Because we don't it's very easy to just go all in on something, work really hard and um and uh, not get much done. I'll give you an example. Um As Brad and I were going over or comparing our book launch week from our first book together, Peak Performance, to this one, um, it was very obvious that Peak Performance we'd get lulls on like launch day or the day after, and we'd be like, "Oh my gosh, like we have a lull. We have to fill it with doing something." So we'd do something that was completely mindless, didn't sell, didn't sell many books, right? And it could have been, I don't know, could have been something as dumb as, like, posting random stuff on Reddit. I don't know. Um, right. But but there were all these, these tasks that we did that didn't, you know, end up in what our number one goal is on launch day, which is selling books so that the message spreads. Um, so this mm-hmm. time we were way more intentional on, okay, like, let's nail the things that we know or have a good, uh, think, with a high likelihood, sell books. And if we have down times, like, let's chill out. Like, you know, on launch day, Brad and I were together and uh, in the Bay Area, and we did all this. We woke up at 5 a.m., did all this hard work, blah, blah, blah. And then it got to 10 a.m., and our next, we had, like, a podcast interview at 12, and we'd already sent all our emails and done all our tweets and all that stuff. And we're like, well, we got 90 minutes to kill, so we went on a hike. Right? Um, yes. Good. Which, you know, wouldn't have happened a couple of years ago because we would have been like, oh my gosh, we have to be like all in and sell books right now. Well, if there wasn't anything impactful to do, then why should we drive ourselves nuts doing stuff that doesn't work? So it's like being, again, aware of what actually impacts things.
1: Right. And then scaling out too and reminding that, remembering that your launch day was just another Tuesday to me you know and to like most other people in the world right and so while something might be super important to you because in your world you've been working hard it's a culminating thing it's you know it it's this thing you put all this passion and energy into for like you know another seven billion people they don't give a shit you know and that's okay because it's not for everybody so rather than working yourself up in a tizzy and be like oh the world's gonna end no it's not the world's not gonna end if you don't sell you know five books this hour or 500 books this hour you know it it's just again one of the general themes right of failure that we always talk about it's feedback it says hey that's what steve and brad did they have got the feedback of we did this tactic it caused us a lot it caused us to drain the battery it didn't work so we're not going to do that tactic because you know what's more important that we are crisp clean and clear so that we have a podcast and you guys get interviewed for it and you guys are articulate You guys are on top of it. You guys are focused. You guys are sharp. You guys are your normal selves rather than what I like to call like your drained self. Because we all know what our drained self is. is that person who's didn't sleep enough, hasn't shaved for guys and women maybe too, like, you know, in a week or two, you know, and is just living on coffee. I mean, it's it's essentially the symptomatic of a track coach come outdoor and say regional or distance coach come out say outdoor and say regionals, right? (laughs) I mean – I've been there it's just like oh my stress is almost over I get a couple weeks and then back to recruiting you know but it's it, sometimes in the position you're in in the job the rhythm is so constant that you have to find these nooks and crannies you know to restore and I won't put you on a spot Steve because you're still you know in the NCAA coaching environment and you just have a new book launch and you have other things I know that are in the, um, the kitty here that you're working on other projects Like, what steps now, crisper, wiser, you know, stronger, uh, are you going to take to uh, circumvent or at least mitigate the likelihood of burnout come June?
0: Oh, man. Well... That's a good question, and maybe I should have this all figured man. out. You
1: got to eat man. If you have a recipe book, you got to eat your own cookies, so. Yeah. No, I mean, <laughs> I,
0: I think I think it, most of it is what I've done is like really set up my schedule and set up my life so that I I I knew, for instance, I knew I was going to be super stretched thin um, for this period where it's like launching a book, still going to meets and coaching and all this stuff. Like I was intentional yeah. on that, and I knew it. So, like, I'm in the midst of experience, not burnout, but, like, coming out of that lull, right? And, and giving mm-hmm. myself time and things to do um, that, like, restore, that are restorative to me. Like from time spent where I can be in nature, go on walks, read books, etc., spend time with friends, all that good stuff, um, to at least counterbalance and t- recharge that, and also time away, like uh, away from my phone. So what I did this time was <laughs> in the in the uh, couple days surrounding launch, I. I allowed myself to be on Twitter, on my phone, and stuff like that. But as soon as we got to the end of launch week, like, all that stuff is gone again. Um, so that mm-hmm. I'm not, like, so that I can, like, de-escalate you know, de-escalate almost and get away from, like, being in that, that social media on my phone all the time um, thing. And then, you know, the other thing is just, you know, putting myself first a little bit on my schedule. Like, I take... Again, like our our our, our training for our, my athletes that I coach is set up a little bit different for the college kids where I trust them to do some stuff on their own, right? So we don't you – know, NCAA allows us to meet six days a week. Like we never or very rarely meet six days a week in season because, you know, between traveling for meets, um, a competing practice – workouts all that stuff like it can go it can drive me crazy and them crazy so for instance you know this week we have texas realize thursday friday saturday like for practice we we just met monday and tuesday <laughs> you know right, yeah, like yeah. W- w- we could have met wednesday because we didn't travel until thursday but we didn't because i was like nope some of these kids are going to be gone for three days like they're going to be racing you know two times or whatever. Like we had a good hard workout on Monday. All they're going to be doing is doing some easy running on Wednesday. Like I need a morning where I can get stuff done and recharge and maybe go to the coffee shop and do some things that I want to do. Um, right. So like we're going to take that Wednesday and you guys get in your run when you need to, or whenever you want to, like don't feel like we got to get up at six forty-five and get it done. And I think you know making sure those things and times exist um, are incredibly important not only for my longevity but also for my athletes' longevity through this season. I mean, it's a long season, and if we're, we're grinding and like pushing every single step of the way, like we're not going to make it.
1: No, and I mean, and that's also a good lesson in one, creating self-resiliency and self-reliance in the athlete, and then also two. Not being a helicopter coach or a bulldozer coach, right? And we know now that's a common plight is helicopter or bulldozing, parenting, and coaching. You don't need to be there for every physical movement that the athlete does. You don't. And if you are, there's something wrong. Because that means you haven't been teaching or you haven't been empowering them to take self-responsibility and get the job done on their own. You know, and Noah Steve said it's for, it's for recovery runs. It's for restorations. There's programs, there's routines, there's rituals set in. This is what we do on these easier days. They're just designed to restore you. Now, you know, he's like, I'm not hands off. If you need some help, I'm around. But it's not like he's like, oh, I'm just a lazy coach. I won't show up to anything or any workouts or anything that's like intense that requires my discerning eye. But I think there is a lot of value in not meeting the, the maximum in the NCAA world. And those those times are um, for, well, for good purposes in place, like those thresholds. And, you know, I know like my first year when I was coaching at Portland State, I was trying to recharge or revamp a program and a mindset and a culture. And man, every week was 20 hours on those kids and on me too, and sometimes more, right? And I... Was getting close to burning myself out but i felt like i had to do this her you know be this her- hercules and move mountains to kind of get the portland state distance program to a degree of respectability but as i got coached longer and as i got more comfortable and as the culture was more sound the reward was less and less and less and same deal now like with the uh, you know post collegiate and semi-pros that I work with like I try to see them less and less and less not because I don't like them or see them in a context where it's like oh I'll just go for a run with you but I won't critique or coach you because what I do see them I want them to be really crisp really efficient and effective periods of time so I'm only going to see you five hours a week for maybe a workouts so and what I call instructional periods which is one-on-one periods that each athlete has two one-on-one periods for an hour a week where you know I work with them specifically on liabilities or um, issues or ancillary things that need um, development and uh, dedicated focus on just them. And they're the main focus. No one, no one else is at practice. And I found it just it keeps everything a lot crisper because people know when they have certain work to be done and when they're the focus or when, they're, when they need to be front and center. And these are adults who are like mortgaging their livelihood and future on you know, running, going well to a certain degree for the next couple of years. And so, yeah, they're going to be motivated to do it on their own. I don't need to be there, but I, I'd be remiss if, you know, I didn't call that out and, you know, give you a little shout out because we need that less helicopter coaching. <laughs> I mean, cause it's seeped into our, our nomenclature. It's seeped into like, you know, being in vogue and we, we, we need to step away from that because it is a symptom that you're really not teaching, that you're just policing
0: yeah you know it's it's one of those things helicopter coaching helicopter parenting um it, it's this need for control you know and i get it like i've been in places i've been in spots where my own coaching where i felt like oh i gotta be there every step of the way and you know this is yeah. my ba- this is my baby but you know actually on that that on that topic like this just came into my mind like so brad has a one-year-old now um yeah and, and it was interesting like talking to him about that and he's like, Yeah, the the urge to um to always step in like and you know, oh like he might tumble while he's walking or you know, all this stuff mm-hmm. and his urge is to always want to step in and save him, right? But you have to fight that urge unless it like actually matters, right? If he's gonna crawl off or walk off the bed, sure, step in. But if he's gonna, if he's uh, just gonna fall over while he's, he's taking a couple steps on the carpet, then like, you know, let him, let him take his lumps. Um, because right. like that, that's yeah. how we, that's how we learn. So I think, you know, it's very similar in the sense of coaching versus running is that there's certain periods of time where it's incredibly important for you to be there and be on your game, a game and coach people up and all that stuff. But there's certain periods where, you gotta trust your athletes to to get what they need done, you know, um, yeah. and and there's nothing wrong with that. And, and I'm not; it's not like I'm just showing up on the hard workouts only because I think there's a huge aspect of being there on some easy and days and mileage days and all that stuff as well. But you know, it's it's like being intentional. Okay, when do when do I need a little break and when do they need a little break from just seeing everybody, Mm -hmm. you know, my athletes, it's, it's funny. Um, I had a couple of my senior girls not too long ago. We had this week where we went, I think Monday, straight Monday through Friday for some reason. And they were like, Ooh, like I miss, (laughs) I I miss, I miss not having like the, the Wednesday recovery run like on our own where I get to sleep in a little bit. And it's like, it just, it's not any harder because I'm doing the same amount of mileage and all that stuff, but it's a little, it's almost like you don't have that like mental respite to like rejuvenate because you're not on this like strict schedule, um, which I think is incredibly important. It's
1: graduating the independence, right?
0: I mean, it's like, I think my, uh, you
1: know, to add to what, you know, Brad said, which is very astute. uh, I asked my father-in-law who raised, uh, you know, with his wife, um, five daughters in their household. And I go, well, how you know, how did you not do that? Like how did you not step in, you know, when you obviously that's part of being older, stronger, wiser, more seasoned, you know that they're gonna commit an error and you're watching it goes, I had two things that kept every action in my mind. One, will this kill them? And the answer is no, they can continue. Two, will this cost me a lot of money, this error they're about to make? And, you know, and he'd be like, well, yeah, if they fall and break a bone, it's not going to kill them, but it's going to cost me a lot of money because we got to go to the emergency room. you know? Or are they going to crash a car or crash something because they live on a farm, crash some equipment? And he goes, as long as it didn't kill them and it didn't cost me a lot of money, I let them make the R. Because that truly is the only way we learn, right? We learn by doing and we learn by messing up. And we can sit here and be well-intended and try to, like, bulldoze the path and make it, you know, as smooth as possible, but we actually in the long run do people disservice and graduating independence is key. And, uh, athletes who I've worked with longest, I tell them that I, I always tell them you're a freshman. Now you're a sophomore, you know, like Eleanor Fulton's a good one. Like when she was a freshman, I go, Nope, I'm God. I don't care. Everything I say is right. You don't know any better because it wasn't because she's not smart. It wasn't because she wasn't, you know, didn't have her shit together. It's just, I knew way more about this world than she did. But now she's like in her junior and senior year. And like, I mean, she's, she's, I mean, she's co-pilot, you know, she calls a lot of shots just as equally as I do. I'm like, Hey, this is your career. Which way do you want to take it? Like I'm here now more in a supportive role rather than in a a driving capacity. I'm actually now in the passenger seat and you're in the driver's seat. Let's figure out, you know, okay, what do you want to do? Why do you want to do it? What do you want to do? You, you call all the shots now, kiddo, but you have to graduate the people into that. And that's a process that takes time, that takes experience, that takes learning, you know. And because you've seen it, like think about the how we graduate in the school system, right? Elementary school, middle school, high school, college. It's a steady graduation of more and more and more and more independence, and you're expected to be more independent. Your the your peer group, you're wanting more independence, and you have to you have to figure out. Oh, I shouldn't cram for a test because I got an F. <laughs> like, or oh, I shouldn't like you know write that paper last minute, you know, oh because like I didn't get that better grade, or I just uh, or I should probably train over the summer for cross country season because that's gonna get me in better condition when we show up, which will then you know result in better condition at the championship meets. And you gotta let people make those mistakes and put two and two together. I mean, it's the same with coaching, right, Steve? I mean. I'm at a place now, right? We're 10 plus years in our journey, and like, oh my goodness! Like the stuff I did when I was year one, year two, I just look at the back of that, shake my head, and just blush red. But my mentors were sitting there watching me and knowing what I was doing, and they just, yep, he has to learn. He has to do it this way, you know. Otherwise, he won't, he won't understand in the long run. And I think that's when you have, you know, you have really good mentors in places when they let you coach or do the things you want. And the things you think you know are right in that moment, which are right for you with the limited knowledge you have. Because, um, but that to them, their experience, but also them being lifelong coaches and teachers, they know that they have to make that, take those actions, uh, live with those consequences, reflect, and then decide to get better from the lack of result or the mediocre result. And then wait for them to come to you. That's a a sign of real master mastery and also high high intelligence
0: yeah i couldn't agree more i mean i think that's a a great place to to sum it up um as i have to uh, branch out and go from my podcasting duties to my coaching duties um
1: the duty the anchors duty the anchors but you know what all our listeners have duties themselves and one duty that we ask of you is to buy steve's book Buy the book, buy the book, buy the book. And I know you get tired of me saying it, but it's really important that you support authors because allowing Steve and Brad to share their work and ideas and buying the book, not just like, you know, like I said, I turned the book. They want to give me a free copy. I said, no, I'll buy it because it's important to buy books. The more you buy books, the more books stay around. So buy books
0: it's- and buy Steve's book. It's true. I mean, I'm I'm saying it's true because I get a small cut, but um, it's also true. I mean, I I do the same thing as I try and buy the authors' books. Um, it's really easy to get free copies after you write, and uh, people want you to promote stuff. But I think it's important because books are. Um, I think it was Ryan Holiday who said that like I will never have a budget a budget for books. Books are the one thing that one thing that I allow myself to. To buy without thinking about price ever, um, because you never yes. know what idea you're going to read that actually changes and, and impacts your life to a, a very significant degree. And I'm sure we all can all can think of books yes. that that we read and we said, "Oh my gosh, like this has changed changed how I think about something." And I think there's nothing more valuable. I don't know if pa- the passion paradox will be that for you, um, but I can guarantee you that there will be tidbits that you get out of it that. Are useful not only in this context and burnout but also in other aspects of your life because i have no doubt if you're listening to this podcast you're also likely pushers like john and i
1: yes no without doubt and i helped like give them some references and some books they used to help write the passion so some of the stuff i already knew but i was like you know what they're they came up and found and intersected and created you know all these golden nuggets where i was like whoa that's awesome but I didn't know about that about Ryan Holiday, Steve, because I have the same exact policy. Like the, you know, the idea or the formulation of awareness and knowledge and expediency of thought you get from reading, it is, you know, and reading good books and books that make you think, you know, it is a screaming bargain, a total screaming bargain. I have no budget either. Like I've bought $500 books. I've bought five cent books. It doesn't matter how much the book is what matters is the value that you get from the ideas in that book i mean i have a 3500 hundred dollar book i want to you know buy here and it's i'm saving my pennies it's henry miller's on turning 80 there's only like 300 some copies in the world and they're not uh easy to get but i mean henry miller is a great author Tropic of cancer and like those books were like a guy who reflects on 80 years of living who was really crisp and curious like man that's invaluable wisdom so pick out the Passion paradox because there's invaluable wisdom there. And also visit the new and better high-performance West. It's slow rollout, not getting burnt out this year, but it's going to be good stuff. And the good stuff is going to be just coming in at a little slow trickle hill here for a little while. And then, you know, it'll pick up. But check it out. It's streamlined, you know, much more minimalist, simple design. Hope you guys like it.